I grew up in a predominantly white, predominantly middle-class suburb in eastern Pennsylvania. I went to a huge public high school. With that very brief context in mind, I don't think it will surprise you that I was assigned to Kill a Mockingbird as part of a required summer reading list at some point in 9th or 10th grade. Harper Lee's 1960 novel, which won the coveted Pulitzer Prize in 1961 and is more recently chosen as the Great American Read by PBS, is hardly a stranger to classrooms. Many of my peers also read Mockingbird when they were students, and the research I did in preparation for this episode confirms the book's position as a staple in the curriculums of school districts around the country. That research also confirmed that there is a great deal of controversy about whether or not that should be the case. We'll get into it more in the episode you're about to hear, but the crux of the problem is this. To Kill a Mockingbird may be a beautifully written classic, but it does not necessarily reflect the true experience of people of color and instead promotes a white savior image to its target audience, which many would argue consists only of white kids. If this is the first you're hearing about this perspective, I understand that it's pretty different than what you may have heard in your English class. We're going to break it down and look at it from multiple sides over the next hour. In the meantime, here's a quick refresher on the plot. In To Kill a Mockingbird, we meet Scout, a six-year-old girl growing up in the deep South during the Great Depression. She's spending the summer frolicking with her older brother Jem and their friend Dill, who is staying in town with his aunt until school starts. The first half of the book gives readers the chance to experience childhood through Scout's eyes, the frustration she feels when her teacher yells at her for knowing to read before her classmates, the admiration she has for her father Atticus Finch, and the mixed feelings she has about Boo Radley, a mysterious and reclusive neighbor who lives on the Finch's street. Things get heavier about halfway through the book, when Atticus, a lawyer, begins working on a case in which he will defend Tom Robinson, a young black man who has been accused of raping a white woman named Mayella Ewell. The trial that ensues and the way that Atticus approaches it are at the heart of much of the controversy around To Kill a Mockingbird. Is Atticus simply trying to teach his children about the value of racial justice, or is he modeling for them a white savior complex? What messages do his actions tell us about race, class, gender, and the difference between right and wrong? These conversations are complicated and ever-changing, and our perspective on them is much different today than it would have been in the 30s when Mockingbird is set and in the 60s when it was written. What my guests and I try to figure out throughout much of this episode is what role Atticus and Harper Lee should play in the larger conversation we have in our society about race and racial injustice. As two white women who are taught about To Kill a Mockingbird from a white perspective, we both learned a lot in preparing for this conversation. Today's guest is lifelong bookworm Amy Jo Bunselmeyer. Amy Jo runs the bookstagram account Literary Joe and the blog LiteraryJoeReviews.com. She grew up reading horse books and Tamara Pierce fantasy novels and graduated college with a degree in English literature and a minor in creative writing. Her favorite books now include The Luminaries and The Count of Monte Cristo. She works in her family's HVACR business and connects with readers online and in person every chance she can. Like Amy Jo, I love connecting with you online, especially on social media. If you're not already, check us out at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. I also love to see you spreading the word about the show, either by sharing a five-star rating or review on iTunes or by tagging the episodes you're listening to in your Instagram stories. Support the show even further by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast for more details about how you can contribute a few dollars monthly to the podcast's production in exchange for exclusive rewards like bonus episodes, tote bags, newsletters, and more. If you're a Patreon sponsor already, please know how much I appreciate all that you do for SSR. In case you missed it, we now have SSR bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts available at www.ssrpodcast.com slash shop. And that's another great way to show your support. Show your support for the independent bookstore community by checking out Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libra FM, I support my local Brooklyn indie books are magic. Thanks so much to my friends at Libra FM for giving me the opportunity to spread their mission throughout the SSR community. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast.
Hi, Amy Jo. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are spending our Thursday night talking about To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, I am very excited. You and I spoke when we first booked the episode a little bit about being transparent with the listeners. And listeners, I think, know that I feel very strongly about this whenever I'm talking about a book that covers particular issues and in particular has a large focus on people of color. And I always think it's very important at the beginning of those episodes to kind of address my blindness in the situation. And so we agreed when you and I decided to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird that the very first thing that we're going to do when we're talking about this book is come right out and remind the listeners that you and I are two white women talking about a book that focuses heavily on race in the South and on racial injustice. Yes, definitely want to make that clear that we are coming at this from the lens of two white women. And we know that that means that we don't necessarily have the viewpoint that some of our listeners and a lot of the readers of this book, um, if they're people of color would have. And we are going to do everything we can as always to be very thoughtful and very sensitive about every angle of this book. I've learned so much in the process of preparing for this interview, probably more than I've learned preparing for any other recording. So I think that in itself is a great place to start. And I also, I don't want to speak for you, Amy Joe, but I think it's worth acknowledging that while you and I, yes, are two white women and that may complicate from the perspective of certain listeners, our viewpoint on this book, I at least for one read this book in school. I was assigned this book in school. And I think that's the experience of a lot of white readers, a lot of white students, a lot of white listeners. And so I think to that point, it is going to be an interesting conversation to talk about how this book is taught and portrayed and discussed among white students in all kinds of communities that look absolutely nothing like the community in which Scout is growing up in this book. Yes. And I'm thinking, I actually don't know that I read this book in school. I think I read it. I actually, my grandma gave it to me to read um, and didn't read it as a student, but I know that it's recommended often required reading in a lot of a lot of schools. So yeah, I completely agree. That's where we're approaching it from. And I'm excited to discuss with that in mind. I did read it for school. I think it was a summer reading book. I think I read it, I want to say going into freshman year of high school, which tracks with a lot of the essays and articles and information that I was reading while you and I were getting ready to chat today. I'm seeing a lot of eighth grade, ninth grade required reading lists. And I remember enjoying it a lot. I remember really loving Scout. I remember knowing that this was a book that a lot of people in my life loved and were moved by. And I remember feeling like I was supposed to really attach myself to it. I don't remember doing much with it in the classroom, interestingly. And so when I was reading all of this stuff about kind of the two perspectives on this book and whether or not it should be taught in classrooms. I was trying to rack my brain to think about whether it was something that we have actually ever like talked about in school because I was trying to remember like how my teachers had handled it and if I felt in hindsight like it had been appropriate. I actually had really terrible English teachers in high school. I just don't remember really like ever diving into it. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I do think it gave me this space to form some of my own opinions. And then I actually did reread it a few years ago when Ghost at a Watchman came out because my friends and I decided that we were going to read both together and discuss it. But I actually think I really kind of breezed through it. So I don't remember much about what I felt about the book on that reading. A lot of the book this time around actually really surprised me. Like I'd forgotten a lot of the nuances and a lot of the plot points. What was your experience reading the book the first time around? So I read it, I think elementary school, probably late elementary school, possibly middle school, but I was really young um, reading it. And I remember it was actually probably one of the first like quote unquote classics that I read because I remember being really proud of myself for like reading a pretty hefty chapter book. Check me um, out. And it, yeah, look at me. It was one that my grandma gave me. She said that it was one that she read um, and she reread. My grandma rereads certain books and this was one of them and she gave me her copy of it and I remember being at her house and reading the first page and I have a bit like a vivid memory of sitting down in her chair and reading the first page and then I don't have a whole lot of memory of the book as a whole because I was pretty young I remember enjoying it since I didn't discuss it with a class or anything I don't have a, a really good memory of what the experience was like and what I what I took away from it I do remember identifying with Scout as you know she didn't really want to do what the other girls were supposed to do she wanted to just kind of run around and play outside and stuff like that and I remember like identifying with that I wanted to play outside all the time but other than that I don't have a really strong um, memory of it I did reread it a few years ago but kind of like you I breezed through it and didn't pick up on a lot of it that that I picked up on on this really careful reread. I think to your point about Scout, 
at least for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you take out a lot of the bigger, sort of tougher issues that you and I are going to try to tackle as we go into this conversation, I think that's something that this book does do really well. And I, I want to say it's almost almost of universal appeal because I, I think that there's something in Scout as a character for a lot of readers. I think this book does a really great job of expressing what it's like to be little. And I think that Scout does so much growing in this book. One of the things that I forgot in coming back to it was that it covers a span of a couple of years. It's not a single summer. I think in my memory, it was just like one summer, maybe two summers, but it covers a period of like three or four years. And so I think we see like so much growth in Scout and we see things like her relationship with her brother changing and her gaining Mm -hmm. an appreciation of her town and like gaining new judgments about her town and losing her innocence about so many things and as you said like getting frustrated about what people expect of her versus how she wants to spend her time and so I think that when I reflect on my first experience with reading this book I remember mostly just attaching myself to Scout and I was aware that there was this very intense courtroom trial happening in the second half of the book and I followed that as a kid I understood what was going on I don't know that I really picked up on a lot of the nuance that happens there but I'm almost positive that what I really took away from this book was a connection with Scout as a character. And I I think that that's what Harper Lee does really well. And so I do want to say, like, there's a lot that we're probably going to pick apart with this book, but there are some things that it does really well. And the two things are, like, we can, both can exist. We can agree that Scout is this amazing character. I think Scout's a really amazing character. We can agree that there are some lessons in this book that I think hold up and that are demonstrated really well and that are somewhat timeless, but that doesn't mean that the perspective through which Harper Lee comes at some of these matters is still the way that we would want to address them today. And so... Yes, I agree with that. That's sort of how I want to set us up. Uh, I know there are huge fans of this book. I know there are huge issues that are taken with this book. We have people who feel very strongly on both sides. I got so many DMs when I started posting pictures of To Kill a Mockingbird on Instagram. Interestingly, a lot from teachers. I got so many messages from teachers who said, this is my very favorite book to teach. I love this book. Interesting. I can't get enough of this book. And then I got several messages from teachers who felt very strongly that the book should be removed from their curriculum altogether. So I guess all of this is to say that we are here to respect the positive elements of this book to let them stay where they are and also to question some things. So I feel like I'm being a little bit redundant in that regard, but it is really important. This book is such a classic to so many people. It was written in 1960. It's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. It's been a staple on so many school lists. Like this really is considered by many to be like a gem of American literature. I yeah, think, I think yeah. it was just voted the great American read. That's true. So which that, I thought was interesting. It and, just complicates yeah. like, it yeah, just complicates yeah. the way that we're able to talk about it in some ways because yeah. my instinct in some ways in hosting the podcast, as listeners know, is always to pick everything apart. And a lot of things deserve to be picked apart, including in this book. But yeah. I also sort of want to like leave certain things in their special spots where they belong. I'm wondering, looking back on it, how many people have reread it since being in school? I may have jumped to voting it as one of my favorite books. I mean, I named my cat Scout. Had I not just reread it and like picked apart things, you know, it had a very, I was very fond of it in my memory. And not to say that I'm not still fond in a lot, in certain ways of it now, but then after the reread and like picking apart certain things and looking at it from a new lens and a new perspective with, I don't know, looking at it from today's world and things that I know and what I've learned and just kind of revisiting it. I wonder if I don't know. That was just something that I was thinking about. I wonder how many people have reread this book since being in school and if it would it would still hold up as their favorite book or as the great American read if they had done a reread. That's interesting because I think when I think about even the people in my life that are older than I am, my parents in particular, they love this book so much. I mean, people of my generation do too. My peers, you know, that I've spoken with about the book have good memories of reading it as well, but it's almost like the older that people are, like the more they rave about it. And I would imagine mm-hmm. that a lot of those people haven't reread the book. So to your yeah. point, like the further you get away from it and the less probability there is that you've reread it, the easier it yeah, is to it overlook becomes, stuff. And it becomes very nostalgic, I think. I think mm-hmm. it's a nostalgic book for a lot of people. And it is a nostalgic book. I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah, I, def- I think it's almost like two books to me. Like that's how it read to me as yes. an adult. Yeah. 
the first I, half is really about like Scout's life and you have her hanging out with her friend in the summer and it almost feels like there should be an ice cream truck on the corner like <laughs> they're just kind of hanging out in Alabama in the 30s and she has this dad who she like totally worships and there's just like this very sweet quality to her life and I found a really interesting quote in the New Republic that I think kind of expresses that it says the first act of the novel is the crucial imaginative prelude to the moral reckoning of the second act the childhood sublime must be celebrated if it's later defaced by adult horrors it's asphyxiation by injustice and race hatred so that it can have any effect and I think that's a really good way to set it up because on reread I I almost was like a little bit confused by it because I kind of knew it was coming and I had reread the book a couple of years ago so I sort of like vaguely understood that we were going to get the setup of Scout's life and how amazing it is and then things are going to change but it is kind of jarring like the way that things shift did you get that sense on this recent reading Yes, I did. It's kind of like the typical childhood novel of sort of the kids running around without a whole lot of supervision, kind of having adventures, playing in the street. There's the mystery of Boo Radley, which feels like its own whole separate thing. And then you have the trial and that feels like a whole separate. I mean, it is a separate event, but but they're very different. But I don't think it would have the same effect necessarily if you hadn't gotten. I mean, that does kind of take show you that the, her loss of innocence and how she's growing. But it, it is very jarring because it feels like two separate things. And it was interesting upon rereading it because I remembered, I don't know, Boo Radley as one thing and then the trial as another thing. But they didn't really fit in my head together very well. Totally. They were kind of two separate, separate books almost. When you really think about it, the the plot itself is it's kind of shockingly expansive in that way. Like I I was having trouble in those early chapters making sense of like how Boo Radley was going to fit into the rest of the book because for listeners who haven't read the book in a while, Boo Radley is this mysterious reclusive neighbor who Scout and her brother Jem are aware of who lives at the end of their street and as kids unfortunately tend to do, they've built up this whole sort of mythology around him and why he is never outside and these terrible things that he's committed against his family members and they are constantly like daring each other to get close to the Radley house and they're sort of just like poking at him um, from outside of his house and that's a lot of the focus of I would say the first like 50 to 75 pages of the book it's kind of the only thing like really going on other than like us getting a feel for Scout's life because we haven't actually that feels like the main thing though yeah that's the plot of the book for the first half of the book exactly and I knew that the trial was coming I knew we were going to meet Tom Robinson. I knew that Atticus was going to start talking about his involvement with this trial. And I couldn't remember how Boo Radley was involved. And Boo Radley isn't involved in the trial itself. Boo Radley kind of comes around after. So I'm not going to criticize Harper Lee's plotting here. But in some ways, I was like, I kind of wish that we'd, we'd focused on one of the two because maybe it's just because I'd read it before and that's why I was in my head about it a little bit but I was like waiting to try to understand the connection between yeah when is he gonna come back yeah it's like when are you yeah is he gonna come to the trial and I actually really like the way that Boo Radley like jumps in at the end like I think that makes sense but maybe it was just like knowing too much that made it hard for me to reread the book as an adult. I had a very similar experience because I couldn't remember where he came back in and in what way, but you knew he had to, so. Yeah. What were your early impressions of Atticus? That's the that's the question, really, because <laughs> Atticus is really kind of at the center of so many of the polarizing conversations that are now being had about this book. I think it's interesting because Atticus is so celebrated in so many ways. I actually have noticed recently an uptick in the number of, like, children being named Atticus. I've seen like lots of Instagrammers with babies named Atticus and middle named Atticus and he's definitely the namesake of like a lot of kids and and babies in our generation and he was portrayed by Gregory Peck in the movie adaptation and there is sort of this heroic quality about him in the way that I think a lot of people just sort of like preserve their personal memory of reading this book and I think there's almost like two versions of Atticus in this book too like we see him just sort of as like the dad around the house and then he switches into lawyer gear once the case 
take center stage. I think we're meant to believe that like he's always the same. He's the same guy on the street as he is in the courtroom. But we start to see him differently, or at least I did. And I'd love your thoughts on kind of what your first impressions were of Atticus and maybe how that began to change over the course of the book. And then we can really start to dig into kind of like what the two sides of this conversation really look like in hindsight all of these years later. Good question. And I'm trying to think. I think I have, there's so much tied up with the character of Atticus that I, I think I came into this reread with so much in my head already that I don't actually know what my first impressions were. I do remember one of the first introductions that we get to him, Scout just immediately just calls him Atticus. And I remember being really struck by that, that they just call him that, which I liked, I think. And then I also remember that he wouldn't walk them to school. Like she asked him to, and he wouldn't. And I was like, he seems kind of aloof. I don't remember that being the case. And I remember kind of being struck by that on this reread. It's interesting because we see him, or we've been taught, I think, to see him as this really spectacular character who we are supposed to look up to. And there and there's a lot of moments where I think when Scout's not supposed to be reading at home, like she goes into school and she can already read and the teacher is mad at her because the teacher is supposed to be the one to teach her how to read. And then she comes home and Atticus says that we'll continue reading, but it'll be our secret. That was one of my favorite moments, I think, of Atticus was that he was going to keep reading to her every night, even though the teacher told her that she wasn't allowed to. And it was moments of, of that in the home that I really liked his character. And I think that's like the home life Atticus that I I really like to see that kind of separated him out in my head from the Atticus that we're supposed to see in, I guess, pop culture or whatever we've been told. Yeah. I don't know. That's not necessarily answering your question. I had too much that I'd been. No, it's a great answer. Grappling with, I think. It's a great answer. And I, um, along the same lines, I remember both as a kid and now really noticing that he spoke to the kids like adults. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. I was a kid that yes. always liked being spoken to like an yeah. adult. I don't I really, want to be treated like a kid. <laughs> no. And I loved being with adults. And part of that mm-hmm. was just because like the way that I grew up, I happened to always be around older people. And so like Scout, like I was very comfortable kind of moving in an adult world. I also really liked the fact that Atticus was a single dad because that wasn't a story that I had read much And there was something, I think, as a kid that it almost felt a little bit glamorous just because that's not a story that you see in a lot of books for kids. I think the single mom trope is so much more common. And I think it piqued my interest right away when I was little that like this was this man and he was living alone with his children and he was this intellectual guy and he was an older guy, which Harper Lee mentions quite a few times like it's very clear that he quote unquote like started late and I think that leads us to believe right off the bat that like he has a different dynamic with his children than a lot of other dads and Scout is very aware of the fact that like she has a different kind of dad than the other dads like the other dads are out sort of doing physical things with their kids and playing games and hunting and fishing and like that's what she sees as sort of normal yeah there's like a whole passage where she's like listing off all the things that the other dads can do that her dad can't yeah but she really yeah he doesn't I think she really appreciates what her dad does especially in the beginning of the book I mean as she gets older she has some like sort of tween thoughts about like how she wishes things were different for her life but I liked all of those things about Atticus and I think that the first time I read the book when I quite frankly didn't know any better I think that it was easy to follow that feeling through most of the book and Mm -hmm. I found a quote somewhere I can't remember which of the essays that I read before I talked to you because there were a lot of I read a lot of essays too I read so many but there was an essay that talks about how one of the biggest problems with the Kilimanjaro Mockingbird, and one of the reasons that it's sort of been like taken out of control as this like paragon of literature about racial injustice is that like this book is one of the first books that a lot of white people in particular can point to as like the book that they read about race. Yep. And I think that that fact alone is what really puts Atticus as a character into perspective for me because it's not to say that he's a bad guy, but it is to say that at that point in my life, he was the only white man that I'd ever read about who was doing this kind of work on what it seemed to be like behalf of an African-American man. And unfortunately, when I was growing up, I assume when you were growing up, there weren't a lot of other voices sharing those kinds of stories and kind of talking about it in a way that's more progressive, 
more reasonable, and more fair. But we didn't have that. This was Atticus. And for me and for so many other people ever since 1960 when this book came out, I think because this book was like so new in its time to like actually address some of these issues, it seemed that Atticus was the only voice that we could listen to and follow in this kind of subject matter. And now in 2019, when we know so much more and there are thankfully a lot of other voices and a lot of other stories talking about this, we realize that just because Atticus was kind of the first doesn't mean that he had it right all the time. Yeah, and he definitely shouldn't be the only voice. If this book continues to be in the classroom, he shouldn't be the only voice talking about race, that we need to have other voices, particularly own voices, not just the voice of a white man written by a white woman. And a privileged white woman. There's a lot of talk that I read about the fact that she's sort of this like privileged daughter of the South Fun fact, I didn't know this, but she grew up next to Truman Capote, um, and they were best. Yeah, actually, fun fact, Dill was based on Truman Capote because they spent all of their summers, like, frolicking through Alabama together. Interesting. I did not know that. I did learn that Atticus was based on her own father. Yeah, Um, and she, like, grew up going to court and, like, watching him. And Truman Capote used to go with her. The two of them would go and watch her father. Wow, I didn't find that article. That's fascinating. Isn't that juicy? And there was a rumor going around at one point that, I guess, Truman Capote had actually written the book. And, oh, wow, Amy Jo's cat is here. and he's This is is my scout. Oh, scout is really cute. She knew we were talking about a scout, so she heard her voice. Scout, thank you for showing up at the recording. So, no, there's all these really interesting stories about Harper Lee and Truman Capote. And interestingly, like, this is one of the books that was kind of like, this is not a word that would have made sense back then, but it was like under blurbed by other authors. Like, there weren't a lot of other authors talking about this book or reviewing this book. John Updike was an author that basically spoke about like every other book that came out in his time and he never wrote anything about To Kill a Mockingbird but Truman Capote Mm -hmm. did so that's a Truman Capote connection but yeah there's a lot said about how not only is Harper Lee white but she also is like a privileged white woman kind of like looking back and celebrating her father and to an extent it's like only natural obviously that like if you have a good relationship with one of your parents you want to sort of idolize them and like preserve them in this way but we don't always see our parents clearly and I think that particularly when we grow up in a certain paradigm and we don't understand the short-sightedness that's around us, it's almost impossible for us to really present an issue in a clear way. So that's sort of like the core issue with Atticus. The phrase that when I was starting to look up articles about To Kill a Mockingbird and about Atticus specifically is the phrase white savior, because that's kind of what he is. And and at least what, what we're like looking at him as now, and we don't necessarily need more white savior stories is kind of what we've started looking at this book with that lens. And I certainly didn't know to look at it at that lens as a younger reader. Um, And I think that it's important to look at it that way now. Having that in mind with a reread, I think was really important. And I learned so much this time around that I wouldn't have thought of before. So I'm very, very glad to have revisited it with that in mind because I definitely didn't know that before. I would anticipate and I don't want to speak for you but because you and I had talked about wanting to make sure that we were being really transparent sort of about our experience with some of these subjects we both wanted to be like really open about where our perspective was potentially limited and I for one knowing that and knowing that that was something that I wanted to address and be aware of I read the book in a very different way. And Mm -hmm. I was looking for examples of that white savior narrative, which I had also seen flagged before I started reading the book. Mm -hmm. A few people had DM'd me that phrase. And I actually never heard that phrase as a kid. I've heard it as an adult. But when I read the book in high school in suburban Pennsylvania, in a high school that was primarily white, in a community that was primarily middle class, I had never heard the phrase white savior. And reading the book now, I felt like I was much more aware of these behaviors in Atticus that Mm -hmm. really demonstrate what that phrase is really about. And it starts with the fact that Atticus doesn't volunteer to defend Tom Robinson. And that's a huge distinction. So again, listeners, if you need a refresher, Atticus is a lawyer in town. I find that one of the things that's really dicey about all of this for me is that even before the trial starts, he has all this amazing wisdom. Like he talks about how you can only know another person by getting in their shoes and walking around in them. Like, that's his big piece of wisdom. And he has all these platitudes that he's always saying to the kids that seem, like, fundamentally good. And so he seems like a fundamentally good, wise, smart, loving guy. And so then once 
all of these other things start to happen, it's, it's you almost have to be able to separate and be like, okay, but that doesn't mean that his intentions are always good or that his heart's always in a pure place as he's getting involved in this trial. So we find out that he is going to be representing Tom Robinson, who is a black man who has been accused of raping a white woman named Mayella Ewell. And at first, we don't know that he's been assigned the case. He kind of just talks like very loftily about how like he couldn't be around his neighbors if he didn't like take on this case. And Scout's really struggling with the fact that he's involved because she's honestly like hearing a lot about it at school. She's being bullied at school because a lot of her white classmates are judging her family for Atticus's involvement in this case. And so she has a lot of questions for him about why he's decided to put himself out there in this way. We're talking about the Deep South in the 30s, and and there's a lot, obviously, that comes with that. And Atticus continues to just sort of, like, do his Atticus thing of being like, well, like, this is being a good person, and how could I not do this? But we find out later that, like, he didn't volunteer. The judge assigned him to the case. And so, although we don't find that out until later in the book, I think if we're kind of looking at the sequence of events in the true chronology, like, that's our first hint that there's some white savior stuff going on here. Like, he's not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. Somebody in the town, sort of his boss, his superior, is the one being like, no, like, you're the one who has to handle this because, like, you're the best equipped to look out for Tom Robinson and give him the best shot at a fair trial. I didn't remember that from previous readings. I didn't remember that he had been assigned to this case, and that was something that surprised me on this reread and definitely was something that I kind of flagged as, oh, that's interesting. There was like multiple things too with that. I think Scout is the one that's wondering why he didn't tell them that he was appointed. And if I'm remembering right, and I think I made a note, but I won't flip through and try and find it, that she's thinking that it's because he didn't want it to change. Like he wanted to seem like he had chosen to do this. He wanted to seem like he had made this really difficult decision, which seems very savory. You know, mm-hmm. like he wanted to, wanted it to seem like he had made a really difficult decision that was putting his whole family in a difficult spot, even though he hadn't really done that. Yeah, he just took an assignment. Yeah. He took a tough assignment, yeah. and it does seem like he's a really good lawyer. Scout yeah. is very impressed and proud of his abilities in the courtroom, and I think she senses that because the judge opted to assign a really good lawyer to Tom Robinson's Mm -hmm. case that like maybe the prospects weren't as bad as everybody thought because of course going into the trial nobody thinks that Tom Robinson can win the odds are stacked against him there's these terrible mobs of men that are coming to try to harass him by standing outside the jail cell at night which is a very upsetting scene that was probably one of the hardest scenes for me to read actually as an adult was the fact that and again this is an extremely white savory move but Atticus unplugs a lamp and brings an extension cord and goes to plug the lamp in outside the jail because it's this tiny country jail that sits right in the middle of the town square and he physically sits outside Tom Robinson's jail cell because he knows now that Tom's been moved to this particular spot before his trial he's sort of anticipating the fact that these angry mobs of men from the community are going to be coming to harass Tom and I feel that that was one of the sort of most obvious displays of white savior behavior in the book because it's like Atticus has to be here to like make sure that Tom's okay and he took that upon himself and it's a little martyrdom and it's there. very on display yes. for the community too he's like got a lamp he's trying to put himself it's in the center of town it's very much in the middle and you find out later after this whole thing has gone on that there's a one of the I don't remember who it was but a man up top watching the whole thing with a shotgun in case things went south but Nobody says anything about that during the scene. Atticus doesn't want you to know that that's there. He wants you to think that he's there on his own, I think. So much of Atticus's attitude toward all of this, in my opinion, it's about intellectualism. And yes, yes, he's like part of the community, of course, in some ways. Like, I think he wants the kids to be one with their neighbors and he wants them to take pride in where they come from. But he also has no problem separating himself from what he sees as like the uneducated white masses in Maycomb. And so he is not ashamed at all to kind of like put himself in this funky spot between all of the white people in town and Tom Robinson. And so it kind of puts him in this unique position where he like doesn't care about judgment from his peers, but he also like doesn't mind if they see him as being a little bit of a hero to Tom Robinson, even if that's not something they approve of. Like he feels very comfortable setting himself in opposition to them and everything that they believe regarding race. He likes his moral high ground. Yes. 
I think. Yeah. Which, I mean, is not a totally horrible thing necessarily because he is doing something good for not necessarily the best. Re- I mean, you can argue about whether his reasons are good or not, but he is defending him. And I do think he tries really hard and is genuinely upset when the case does not go his way. But there is definitely, he likes his moral high ground and he does like to see himself as a white savior. Like whether he sees himself that way or not, I think he thinks he's doing a good job and he thinks he's doing a good thing. And these aren't terms that I think they had in the 60s when she was writing this, when Harper Lee was writing this, or especially in the 30s when this is set. I think there's there's just, there's a lot of different like levels to this and to his character right and I think you're right like I don't think even now when people are critical of Atticus and critical of what this book is really saying about how we make a difference in racial inequality in this country I don't think anybody's saying that Atticus is fundamentally a bad guy or that he has bad intentions and in some ways that makes this even harder because it would actually make it harder yeah it would be so much easier if we could be like Atticus has no idea what he's talking about he is secretly hateful and mean and like there's people paying him off to do this like none of that's the case he really is doing the best that he knows how in a very small community where he doesn't have a lot of information about what he's actually doing sort of and how it contributes to like the larger good or like our bigger conversations about race but that doesn't mean that like his actions aren't translating in this situation to like his kids and the way that Scout and Jem in particular are like internalizing messages about what's right and what's wrong and how to communicate and respect and support people that come from a different background than you. So I think that's, it's so hard because like when Atticus goes to sit outside the jail, he's not doing it out of any malice in his heart. Like when he goes to do a great job in court, like I think he genuinely thinks that he's doing the right thing, but obviously the way he goes about it is, is all wrong. And I, I'll say that one of the things I really enjoyed about the book when I was a kid was this courtroom stuff because I don't think I'd ever yeah. read a book about a courtroom. A courtroom. And when I was in high school, later in high school, I got really into reading Jodi Picoult books. And it was because I loved this kind of stuff. Like, I loved getting into the yeah. evidence. And this is like a silly detail, but I noticed reading this book as an adult that, like, this trial is really quite brief. For such a large charge, these lawyers are asking each witness, like, five questions. And part of it is probably just because it seems to everybody to be fairly straightforward what happened. But I do remember thinking that this kind of storyline, where you're getting to be in a courtroom, was really exciting because I hadn't seen that before when I read this for the first time in high school. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of the same way. I liked reading courtroom drama type things as I got older, although I don't really know that I read them that much anymore, but I really enjoyed reading them. And this was probably my first introduction into that. But uh, reading it now, I was like, this was very brief. There was not a whole lot of evidence. There wasn't really any evidence presented and there weren't very many witnesses. There wasn't a whole lot that went into it. Yeah, very brief. I'll try to summarize the case as best as I can because it's a lot of pages of the book. This is where I'm talking about like there's two books happening here. Like the first yes. book, they're living in this idyllic world in the South where, you know, they have some wacky neighbors and Jem and Scout are arguing and like figuring out how to grow up together and all of that. And then all of a sudden we're in this very heavy courtroom drama. So essentially what happens is Tom Robinson is on trial. He's been charged with rape. Mayella Ewell is a white 19-year-old girl, I think, um, whose family is extremely poor and they live sort of, it's described as like out by where all of the the black families live. So they're kind of coexisting in a world that's largely segregated. So that in itself is kind of an interesting dynamic. And Tom Robinson has been accused of basically taking advantage of Mayella when she's asked him in to like help her move some furniture. Atticus demonstrates that there's no way that Tom could have inflicted the kinds of injuries that Mayella has said that she has because he doesn't have the use of his left arm and all of Mayella's injuries are on one side of her body and all of the witnesses confirm that and Atticus also proves that her father Bob Ewell is left-handed and so he actually would have been capable of inflicting those injuries upon her. And it becomes like pretty clear to everybody in the room that it's actually Bob Ewell, Mayella's father, who's guilty in this situation because Mayella was trying to have sex with Tom um, and saw her dad in the window, screamed, knowing that her dad would be very upset about the fact that she was interacting with Tom. And then Bob, who is sort of like a known drunk in the town, comes in and attacks her. And that's where she got all of her injuries. 
does that cover kind of what Atticus has proven? I want to make sure I don't miss any details. Yeah, because yeah, no, I think that covers it. Okay, so... I think that's a good description. This is where things get white savory again because Scout and Jem are like up in the balcony with their cook, Calpurnia, and her whole church community. So they're the only white kids up in the balcony. And they've kind of been embraced by everyone because they are the children of Atticus Finch, who I believe there's a quote that says, like, nobody has done more for this community than your daddy. Yep, I, yep, I remember that quote. <laughs> Which yeah. made me uncomfortable. And then... The court recesses, they're waiting for the jury to come back with their verdict, and Jem is very confident that they're going to win. I mean, logically speaking, Atticus should win. He's proven really, like, completely, 100%, that, like, there's no way that Tom could have done what he's accused of doing, and it seems like there's no reason that he should be charged. We kind of know as readers, because there's a lot more to go in this book, that it's probably not going to be that easy. And, in fact, when court comes back into session the judge delivers the verdict that the jury has convicted Tom and rightfully so everybody in the courtroom is like very startled in particular the people that Jim and Scout are sitting with Tom's family Tom's community are shocked but when Atticus walks out of the courtroom they all stand and they insist that Scout and Jim also stand and they're they're like you have to stand up and like show respect for your dad and shortly after that like they send all of these this food and all of these gifts and it's this element of hero worship that I did not appreciate as a younger reader that like yeah Atticus did a pretty good job of defending Tom he lost and also these are people that don't have a lot and so just the fact that Harper Lee like went to the trouble to be like these people don't have enough but like look how generous they are because they like are so appreciative of him I think it just pointed to this really problematic mindset that like just because Atticus like tried to do something nice for a black man means that he deserves endless accolades like that's just not how it should work yeah and I think by try to do something nice it was also his literal job right because it was a job that was assigned to him his boss told him to do it and he just did his job so you know <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> which it's I mean it's, good. he did do a good job and he definitely proved that Tom was innocent even though they did not come to that conclusion the jury did not come to that conclusion but still it was his job and there was I agree that there was definitely a lot of hero worship there that Harper Lee decided that was necessary on this read was was pretty jarring yeah it's really incongruous too because it's like I feel like so much of what Atticus seems to be about when he's talking to his children is like doing good things for other people is like a basic human responsibility Mm -hmm. like that's just what you should do right that's like you shouldn't need to have anything in it for you like you shouldn't have any guarantee of winning um you should just kind of do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and Harper Lee really like goes hard on that point with Atticus like that's the core of who he is as a character but then it seems like Atticus gets celebrated so much for doing like a basic deed which a like you said is just his job but like I I don't know it's there's something that doesn't make sense about it the way that Atticus talks and the and sort of what he preaches to his children to his community doesn't match up with like the treatment that he accepts and yes he sort of waves it off and is like tell them not to bring me any more food but he's also like secret I mean the my perception of it and yes maybe it's because now I know what I'm reading but my perception is that he's also like secretly welcoming it. I mean, it feels good, I'm sure, from his perspective to like be the guy in town that's doing what nobody else says they would do, which is to like really work hard to defend a black man. And I guess what Harper Lee is trying to say is that like, you know, there's that quote about true courage is knowing that you've been licked before you begin and still beginning. And I I think that that is portrayed pretty well in what Atticus does. Like he does know when he starts this trial that there's probably no way that he's going to win. And yet he puts forth like a really great argument. His closing statement is long and iconic and great and all of those things. And I'm not going to read it, but it is worth reading. And I believe it's, you know. It's a good closing statement. It's It's a good closing statement. Harper Lee did a very good job with it. (laughs) Gregory Peck kills it in the movie adaptation. Uh, And I guess the point point that we're supposed to take away from it is that like Atticus is great because even though he knew that he wasn't going to win like he still worked really hard to do the very best that he could for Tom he didn't half-ass it like he really like did everything he could for him and so I guess that's what we're meant to learn but there's also this element of like that should have been enough we don't need to see 
all of these black characters then worshiping him because of it. Yeah. I think it was just such a deliberate choice on the part of Harper Lee, whether or not Atticus, you know, he wait, he does say not to bring him anything more. And, but I think it's just a very deliberate choice on Harper Lee's part to, to have them. I mean, she chose to write that, to have them bring, bring him all these gifts and to thank him and to, to do that. So it's just a choice that she made in her writing of the book. And it's interesting looking back on it with that in mind. The other piece of this that has become really controversial is the way that Tom Robinson's life proceeds after the trial. So we know that he has lost the trial, but Atticus feels very confident that they can appeal it and that they have a good chance of winning on appeal. I actually felt as a reader, even now as an adult, I was like, oh, it's going to go to appeal. Like, I, I think I remembered it going to appeal. I don't know why I must have made that up in my head because that's not what happens. But I, even as an adult reader, was like very hopeful that the trial would go to appeal and that he would have a chance at winning because he so clearly was in the right. But unfortunately, what happens is that Tom is shot. And this is extremely reminiscent, unfortunately, of police-involved shootings that we see today. Uh, He's trying to run in jail and he's shot and he dies. And there's a lot of talk now about the fact that like there's this paternalistic message of like, First of all, he had to be helped in this trial by this, like, magnanimous figure like Atticus. And even then, like, he wasn't able to help himself in that situation where he was shot. I think, do you feel like that represents that part of it fairly? Yeah, there's a quote. Atticus felt like they had a chance, and he said he was done taking chances. He wanted to do something on his own, and that's when he ran. Mm -hmm. And... And that's when he was shot and killed. I I think you you summed it up very well. I also was hopeful at the end and had kind of forgotten that that was the way that it ended. And I'm I'm not sure why I thought that. I think I thought it had a happy ending. I'm not sure why I remembered it that way. Um, I think we see that in a lot of other courtroom kinds of stories. Like, things are usually appealed, you know, and we usually have a second chance. And so maybe you and I both had that in our head reading this book. Wishful thinking in, in some way, too. Yeah, Um, so the messed up thing is as soon as Atticus isn't available to kind of like quote-unquote come to the rescue in this book, Harper Lee kills the character. Like that's kind of the idea. And we see it, there's a parallel in what happens later with Boo Radley. To put it very briefly, or I'm going to try to put it very briefly, (laughs) Scout and Jem are walking home late from a school event and Bob Ewell, whose daughter was the one who accused Tom Robinson of raping her, even though he won the case, his daughter won the case, he feels as though he's been sufficiently humiliated in the community and he's basically like threatened everybody who's involved with Atticus in the weeks after the trial. And he tries to attack Scout and Jem on their way home from school. It's dark. Scout's kind of hilariously wearing this like chicken wire costume from a pageant. And Boo Radley comes and saves them. I mean, he's kind of been hiding out in his house for all these years watching these kids grow up and he's very protective of them. And when they all get home and sort of sort out what's gone on, it becomes clear that Boo Radley actually stabbed Bob Ewell and Atticus and the police chief, Heck Tate. I don't know if he's a police chief, but he's, you know, in some sense, he's, whatever his he's title is. He's the police is, in some, he's, some fashion. Yeah, he's the police. They basically agree that, like, they want to make sure that Boo just gets to, like, go home and um, sort of be hidden away from all of this, and they're trying to protect him. And so, again, it's, like, Atticus that gets to be the one to step in and be like, no, like, I'll take care of it. You can't be trusted. Like, I'm going to be the one to save the day. And it was weird because, like, Atticus was so sure that Jem was the one who was responsible for killing Bob. That was weird. That was a really strange scene to me because he thought when he thought that Jim had done it, he was so adamant that like they weren't going to brush it off, that Jim was going to have to take responsibility for what he had done, which was stab a grown man. But the sheriff or police or whatever, heck Tate was like, no, he fell on his own knife. And, and for me, I was like, well, it's very obvious that Boo Radley did it. Right. Obviously. And Atticus wasn't getting there. And then finally he got to that point and then was like, oh, okay, well then he fell on his own knife. Yeah. I, that was a, that was a very odd scene. And I don't, I'm not sure if I really understand why it happened the way that it did. I think, I think your interpretation of it makes a lot of sense to me now. And I didn't fully get that out of it when I read it. Cause I was so confused by why he was making such a scene, I guess it was very strange to me. Well, I think it's honestly just like Harper Lee maybe laying it on a little thick and just being like, no, Atticus is like so good that he's going to like sacrifice his own son to show that like he is an upstanding citizen. And it's it's like, sit down, Atticus. You don't need to be this proud. This is like a ridiculous point to make. And this is kind of where you see like the title of the book coming Mm -hmm. full circle. And I found some interesting 
thoughts about all of this in an article on the National Council of Teachers of English, uh, which actually Chelsea reads on Bookstagram sent to me. She's a teacher and she wanted to make sure that I saw this article as I was preparing to talk to you today. And I'm going to read this somewhat long paragraph because I think that it's important in its entirety. So who are the mockingbirds in the story? Clearly Boo Radley, the mentally ill recluse, qualifies. Another obvious candidate is Mrs. DuBose, who we didn't talk about, the old lady addicted to opioids. Both characters are gentle, though ineffective in formal society. But of course, the main mockingbird in the story is Tom Robinson, a kind young African-American man wrongly accused of rape. Even the publisher of the local paper compares Tom's later death to the senseless slaughter of songbirds by hunters and children. Songbirds? Really? Just to recap, when it comes to drug addicts, mentally ill people, and African Americans, don't harass them and don't kill them because they're like songbirds and what they do for us. That is the title metaphor of the book, people. I cringe when I think about the condescension in it. And I think that captures it pretty well. Clearly, this particular teacher is in favor of removing the book from curriculum. I was struggling as I finished the book to like figure out how to synthesize all my thoughts about it. And I think that paragraph does a really good job of summing up like it sums up the condescension that Atticus has towards these different communities of people it even leaves out a character like Mayella Ewell the whole thing between Mayella and Atticus during the trial is that Atticus is like such a gentleman to Mayella and again Harper Lee like really lays that on really thick where like Mayella thinks that Atticus is being rude to her because he keeps calling her ma'am and saying please and thank you. And while Mayella isn't included in this sort of like roundup of the songbirds in the book, in this particular essay, I kind of think that she's a songbird in some ways also because it's like Atticus sees that she comes from an underprivileged community as well. She comes from very little money. She's lonely. She has no friends. And like, again, Atticus is like, acting paternalistic toward her and while she's done this awful thing by wrongfully accusing somebody of a crime he's trying to like protect her and make sure she knows that like she can come back from being involved in this terrible thing and so I think like the overarching theory and the problem with this book according to so many people is that Atticus in like trying to quote-unquote do the right thing by all of these communities is actually just stripping them of their power acting paternalistic and like being very condescending and sort of like taking their fate into his own hands and um it's interesting because like scout isn't even the moral agent of her own story like atticus is the moral agent for everyone and that becomes especially problematic when we're talking about the people that he's supposed to be helping and those are the people that like as kids growing up in the 90s and the 80s and whenever it's like we thought that Atticus was like quite frankly like a savior for those people and uh in hindsight that's just not handled well in this book at all and whether or not it's like a product of its time or not like this is like a shitty time and a shitty representation of the way people should treat each other so I don't think that just because it's a product of its time we should write off the fact that like these are really problematic ideas that's a very similar I read an essay that Roxane Gay wrote about did you read that one Mm -hmm. yeah that she wrote about this and said yes this is a book that is a product of its time but it was I don't remember the quote exactly, but that it was a, a bad time. It's like a bad time. <laughs> it was bad, a bad time and not good people. And that's obviously not the quote. And she talked a lot about how that she's not a fan of this book, but that she, that she was not the primary audience for this book. And that Scout is a very compelling character, but most of the other characters aren't. And that Atticus obviously is a lot of how what we've discussed as the white savior character. And that just reminded me that quote, what you just said. Reminded me of her quote there. I think what she had to say about the book was really measured and fair, and I'll be sure to include a link to that essay in the show notes for this episode. But she acknowledges what's good about the book. She acknowledges Scout, a lot of the things that you and I talked about at the beginning of the episode. And she, again, like acknowledges that she's not the correct audience. Like she maybe wasn't supposed to take from it what so many, quite frankly, white people have taken from it over the years. But she, I think she's just like very fair. Like she recognizes what's wrong, acknowledges what's good. Um, I really liked her essay a lot because there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of essays out there that I feel like were just coming at this book. Like it's like pure blasphemy. And I don't necessarily think that that's fair. I mean, we are talking about a book that was written well before like these ideas had ever been spoken about. And so I'm happy that we're able to reflect on the book differently now. But I think to like write it off as trash is also not fair. Whether or not it should be taught in schools is like another issue. And yeah. 
one that, you know, I can have thoughts on, but like would leave to education experts. But I think to like write it off as trash is not representative of like the full story. Yeah. I read something about how it's been banned multiple times for a variety of reasons. It was banned because of its content at one point, And then it, you know, there's, it's on a lot of those like banned book I don't know, lots of the band book mugs and bags and everything. It's yeah. like, I read band books and that it's one of the titles on, on that for its content. And now it's being questioned for a very different reason. But again, I, I second your opinion that maybe the, the edu- educators should be the ones to, to look at that. Um, but I did read something and I don't remember what article it, it was because I read so many that said that maybe it shouldn't be taken out of the curriculum, but we just need to add more books to the curriculum that do a better job talking about race, that this shouldn't be, the, this obviously shouldn't be the end all be all book in a curriculum about race. And for a lot of us, and I, I wasn't one of the ones that read this in school, but for a lot of people, it's the only book that we're given that talks about, you know, race in the South. And if that's the case, then that that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I think that sums it up really well. I think the problem is not necessarily only what this book has to say. It's about the fact that this is the only book saying it in a lot of venues. I found a story that suggested a lot of other options. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. I actually did read that book in school, so shout out to Amaya's High School. Their Eyes Were Watching God, Black Boy, and then also some newer titles like The Hate You Give and Hush by Jackie Woodson. So I think that's a really great point. Whether we like the way that this book presents race and prejudice and all of those things, it's an important conversation, obviously, because we want to be able to teach kids in particular, like why this is or isn't okay. But it is a book that's been lauded as a classic. It's a beautifully written book. And I think sort of as a piece of literature, there's nothing necessarily wrong with reading it and talking about it as long as we're being fair. But we also need to bring in other perspectives, particularly own voices, so that this isn't the only book. Atticus doesn't need to be the only one talking about race and what's right and what's wrong and how we treat other people. I think that's sort of like the key thing here and I think in that way like as two white women it's actually really important that we talk about this book because I think that this book really actually forces us as white women to like confront the way that we're talking about issues like this even today and so um, I'm glad that I at least you know I feel really grateful to have had the opportunity to examine this book so closely and to take a good look at the way that I talk about certain issues and the way that I interpret certain things that I read Um, and it was a much different reading experience than I expected it to be for better or for worse. Yeah, it was for me too. And I think I was nervous approaching it. Like it's a book that I loved as a, as a kid. And I, like I said, I named my cat Scout. And I'm very, very grateful that we picked this book because I think approaching it now and rereading it with this mindset and looking at it carefully to look for specific things helped me. Like I think I, I needed to read it that way. Yeah. Because I think it's really important that we don't hold literature up on a pedestal. I think we need to acknowledge that books that we liked and classics have flaws. Yeah. And I think that's important. Like just because this is a book that won the Pulitzer Prize does not mean it's a perfect book. And it has a lot of flaws and there's a lot of problems. And I think it was important for me to go back and reread it and look very closely for those that way we could be able to talk about it. Not that that means that I didn't necessarily the best job in the world. I'm sure like I could read it again and find more things and learn more. And I'm sure there's lots of other books that I should be reading, but I don't know. I think this is a good opportunity for me to do that. One other thing that I wanted to mention before we start to wrap up that I just, we didn't really get a chance to talk about is the discussion around Mayella Ewell's testimony in court and the way that in 2019, we read that as sort of something that like flies in the face of our conversations now about believing victims of sexual abuse. There's sort of an expectation among the people gathered in court during this trial that Mayella is sort of like just an unreliable witness just because of who she is and where she comes from. Women in general are not really very respected in this book, which is something that we didn't get to talk about, but I think listeners can probably infer based on when the book was written and also the time in which it's set. But Mayella is sort of like pushed aside in a lot of ways, just in terms of like people not believing her when she says that she was raped or who raped her or the circumstances of the situation. And ultimately her testimony sort of had been manipulated by her father and that is 
what actually happened. But I think the issue is that like people walk into the court not necessarily ready to believe her. And in 2019, like it is pretty problematic that the plot of the book is that like she lied about being raped. Like that's not something yeah. that we want teen girls to assume is going to happen to them if they were to come forward with news or with an explanation to an adult that like they'd been the victim of assault or abuse. So I think while I see what Harper Lee was trying to do in terms of plotting with that particular thread, it is an issue, I think, with teachers sharing this book with students in a time when we're trying to be so much more sensitive and so much more respectful and empowering of people sharing their hard truths. So um, I just want to make sure that we mention that because it's a really important piece of the puzzle in some of the like harder talks that we're having as a society and as a culture today. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had obviously knew that that was an important plot point and remembered that, but it was pretty, I, I think I've used the word jarring multiple times during this conversation, but it was kind of jarring to read that section of the trial in light of a lot of the conversations and topics that we've are dealing with in our society today. And I think that would be interesting to discuss in a class, but could be very difficult and something that teachers would need to approach really carefully. It felt pretty icky that Harper Lee as a female writer yes, yes. had so much of the plot turning on the fact that Mayella was willing to lie because of her father's instructions about something like this. So I think like that's kind of the yeah, core I, issue there. I didn't think the treatment of Mayella was very good either. No. Like, I mean, yes, she lied because of her father, but no one seemed really concerned. They pin it on Tom Robinson. It comes out that he's not the one that did it. No one really seems concerned about Bob Ewell, the one that really did it. We think the treatment of her was just really, it made me really sad. So Harper Lee's treatment of women kind of throughout the whole book was not something that I really remembered, especially with Scout being as strong of a young female character as she is. A lot of the adult women don't really get the treatment that I would have liked to see. So I feel like we've kind of pointed to your answer to this question, but I'd love for you to like just put a finer point on it for me. I don't really know if I've put any sort of a fine point on my answer to this <laughs> question. I'm not sure that I could, but I'm going to ask you to do it and then I'll see if I can do it. Has rereading To Kill a Mockingbird as an adult made you love the book all the more or has it ruined it for you in some way? I wouldn't say it's ruined it in the sense that I would never revisit it again. Um, I don't know that I love it in the way that I used to. It doesn't like sparkle when I look at it on the shelf in the way that I thought it was like a perfect Pulitzer Prize winning book. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's good to, like I said earlier, I think it's good to look at literature with flaws and in the context of the flaws of the author. And I'm very grateful to have reread it and to look at it with that lens. So I think it's been a good experience for me to reread it. Don't know if that's necessarily a good thing with my opinion of the book. I would say that as a book, uh, sort of divorced from all of the other conversations that we've had, which I'm, I feel like these have been really meaningful, productive, thoughtful conversations. So thank you for being part of those with me. As a book itself, I think I loved it just as much as a work. It's beautifully written. It's nostalgic. I know nostalgia is not always a good thing when we're trying to be progressive, but I enjoyed the reading experience mm -hmm. sort of as an isolated moment. It felt like good to revisit a book that I remember meaning a lot to me and like making me feel important in some way as a kid because I felt like I was I was kind of entering the world of adult books. Like this is one of the books that I read young when I was like, oh, like I feel like maybe this is what adults talk about. And so this book kind of brought me back there. But then as soon as I started like stepping back and learning and reflecting and considering and like reading other perspectives, that ruined the book for me. So I, I had sort of a cop out in terms of my answer because I feel a little bit of both. It has changed the way I feel about the book being like this universal reading experience for people. I found a quote somewhere that talks about like we can't assume that every kid is a scout or an atticus like we have to assume that there are kids that are tom robinson's and mayella's and calpurnia's and we need to mm -hmm. figure out a way to teach this book and talk about this book that addresses all of those experiences and i think that really sums it up nicely that like this is a book that's well written and important and a key part of our literary history but like we have to change the way that we like think about it with respect to humans and children especially yeah yeah there's not just two main characters or important characters in 
the grand scheme of people, which is how that book has been taught for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and kid readers might relate to different people. Like kids are yeah. not always like you and I are related to Scout, but like not every kid is going to relate to Scout and be like, my dad is Atticus. Like that's not true yeah, to everybody's experience. Realistic. Yeah. And I would agree with your answer too. It was very nostalgic to read it again in the sense of reading a book that was one of the first books that made me feel kind of like a grown up reader. And it is a beautifully written book. Harper Lee had a good way with words. So it was fun to reread it in that sense. Complicated. Yes. Very complicated. Well, I think you and I can both take like a little bit of a deep breath because we were both, we, we both were a little nervous. It's a hard one to discuss. It's important to a lot of people and uh, polarizing. So now let's talk about some other books that you've been reading. What else have you been loving? What would you recommend to our listeners before we sign off? In a completely different vein that has Nothing to do with To Kill a Mockingbird. Recently, I read The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. Oh, it's so good. Okay, yes. Obsessed. That's my favorite book that I've read recently. Me I too. absolutely adored it. And I just will continue singing its praises because I think it's fabulous. She's such a good writer. I can't believe she's a debut novelist. Yeah, my mom, she's asked fantastic. Borrow, my mom asked to borrow it recently. And I was like, okay, but I'm actually like really sad that I don't have it anymore. <laughs> I, I, just, I loaned my copy to my mom. And she took it outside and I was like, you have to leave the dust jacket inside because the humidity will ruin it. Right. I was like, and I need, I need it to remain in its pristine condition. Yeah. It's so good. good. I'm recommending it to everybody. (laughs) I think it's my favorite book that I've read this year. Yeah. It's like maybe tied for first, maybe tied for first. What's the other? A Woman is No Man. Okay. Yeah. I read that one. I enjoyed that one. All right. Well, we both highly recommend the most fun we ever had. Listeners, if you haven't picked it up just like do it I actually I loved reading it in the summertime it was a great beach read but I do kind of regret that I didn't have it like under a big cozy blanket in the fall like it's really that kind of a book so it's it would be not a good cozy late. fall read yeah it's not too late to enjoy that experience I'm actually kind of jealous of anybody who's going to be reading the book that way Amy Jo thank you so much for being on the show I'm going to include links to the most fun we ever had I'm going to include a link to To Kill a Mockingbird I'm going to include a link to your blog and to your bookstagram in the show notes for this episode everybody please go take a look. I've had such a great experience talking about this book with you and I just appreciate you being so thoughtful and uh, intentional in the way that you read it and spoke about it with me. So thank you so much for taking the time and for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for all of your thoughts on this. I had a great time speaking with you and I love the podcast and love speaking with you. And spoiler alert, everybody, I discovered that Amy Jo loves horse books and read a lot of horse (laughs) books as a kid. So you might hear from her again on like a very different note. Like we might go in on Saddle Club or something next time. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.